0: Episode 107 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Mike. It's been a really
0: musically exciting week here, Indeed. Mike. I, I had a gig earlier this afternoon, and I rushed back to get to the podcast. So I'm not used to playing music in the middle of the day.
1: <laughs> yeah, and here you are so, looking all snazzy in your uh, in your nifty shirt there. button-down shirt, shirt. That's right. Looking really sharp. So I was busy doing music since the morning time.
0: And earlier this week, we got a chance to do another interview.
1: Yeah, we got to talk to uh, the composer, Niklas Sivlev, the Swedish composer, um, who we spoke about, I forget which episode it was, two weeks ago. Yeah. Okay. It was uh, his first and fifth symphonies, and we really liked them a lot. We got in touch with him with Facebook. I think he liked the, uh, he, he actually listened to the podcast and right. liked what we said about it and commented on it. So we uh, set up an interview with him. He was very, uh, very gracious, and it was a fantastic interview as well. He was really... Uh, talkative and had a lot of uh, things to say it was, it was really great
0: yeah i like his whole approach to music it's very broad and yeah. i think maybe it's from his background he started out playing organ but not reading music so he was improvising and using his ear to uh, try to learn and play mozart
1: pieces which i, I think is the best way i think it's, it's i think music should be like language you learn to speak before you learn to read right. you know what i mean so mu- reading should come later
0: and so we, we talked about uh, his piano playing, his composing, now his symphony writing, and also some of these uh, interesting things he's done a little bit outside of the sort of mainstream of classical music as well. So uh, I think you'll enjoy this interview a lot. And we'll put that up this week on Thursday morning, Japan time. That'll be Wednesday evening, U.S. time. So if you want to check that out, look for Interview 7 with Nicholas Sivalov.
1: Yeah. One of the things uh, that we mentioned when he uh, contacted us, he let us know that he thinks of himself mainly as a pianist and not as a composer. So we know him as a composer, of course, because of the uh, recording. And uh, that was what made me want to talk to him. I said, like, there's more to this guy than yeah." Than we thought. If you're interested in knowing what goes into a symphony or what's in there, um, he, he details that a bit too. We asked him about the two works that we talked about on the podcast and he uh, filled us in on his inspirations and for certain sections and things like that. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, I think you'll find this interview very interesting.
0: Yeah, check that out. So that'll be coming up on Thursday, Japan time before the next episode.
1: And of course it'll be up forever. So you can listen to it, it uh, you know, 10 years from now, if you like. Okay, there's more news. Oh, we have news. Yeah. Muse. Hyperion Records, my favorite record label. At least they have all my favorite um, artists on it. Um, this week, they're a British label, independent British label, but not anymore. They were picked up by Universal Music Group, hmm. and they're going to stay independent under that umbrella. I don't know what that means. What does it mean? But I'm hoping that w- one of the things this deal means is that Hyperion albums will be available for streaming. One of the big problems, I mean, I want to talk more about Hyperion records on these um, podcasts. I still do. And we're going to have another one coming up in about two weeks. The The amazing uh, Stephen Hoff recording of uh, Federico Mompo's um, Musica Caida, which mm. I've been saving for Easter. I should have done it really earlier because it's really great. But you can only sample them from the Hyperion site. They don't have their music on streaming. And hopefully this will mean it'll finally go there. But I don't know yet. So I can't yeah, say. It's
0: one of the few you know, really big labels left that isn't on streaming.
1: It's not a very big label, but it is like a a well-known label. Yeah, major, major classical label. Sony
0: held out for a long time with a lot of their uh, Japan releases, but now you can hear most of those.
1: And that's really bad because they're like, they have major clout, that label. They have the whole Columbia Records uh, (laughs) collection, you know, which goes back for more than 50 years, I think. But if
0: Hyperion got on there, then uh, it would be easier for our listeners (laughs) to check out uh, all the recordings we talk about so we'll have to see what develops and we'll keep you updated if we see some of those recordings appear on the streaming platforms right so before we get into the music we're going to talk about this evening i want to remind all of our listeners that in the episode description you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to talk about, speaking of streaming. And also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You can get all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform. They also have podcasts, so you can follow us there, get the podcast and all the music in one place. If you prefer, look us up adult music podcast on Deezer. And if you can't see the full description or the recording list or the links don't work because on some places where you know the podcast feed goes to, they don't always show up neatly spaced out and the links don't always work. But everything always works very easily on our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can always come over there. The Apple podcast is always easy to follow as well. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend, too. Uh, We get more listeners if you recommend our podcast to someone else who likes music. And if you just take a moment, give us a ranking or write a short review, that'll also help us get listed in the browsing categories uh, and the recommendations there. And that helps us get new listeners as well. Come over and follow us on our Facebook page to get extra info. Uh, more new releases throughout the week. Put up a bunch this week as well. And you can also see the interaction we get with some of the artists. We got a couple of likes last week from yeah. our uh, piano artists there. And you can also leave a message or comment there on Facebook. And if you want to get in touch directly by email, you can do that as well with any comments or questions. We'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word at gmail.com. And we're also trying to share our audience and get more listeners from other related podcasts. So we've got a couple other ones to recommend to you. The first one is Tom this Something Came From Baltimore. And he's got a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast. He's always got a lot of well-known musicians on there every week. So check that out. Famous Interviews and Neon Jazz from Joe Domino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. We've got Same Difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard. It looks at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. They play a little pieces of each version discuss the history of the original and the different versions and you can find those links at the end of the podcast description there also at the end of the audio of this podcast episode there will be little promo spots from
1: each one of those so please down to the end and listen to what they're all about Okay, so let's get into the uh, music for this week. First, we are celebrating an anniversary. Mm. These musical anniversaries are a big thing in classical music, and it's a nice thing because it makes us um, look back at composers who you know, may not be being performed as much as they right. otherwise ought to be. It becomes like a certain year. And this year, we have um, the anniversary of the four, the 400th anniversary mm. of the death of two Renaissance composers. One of them is uh, a very well-known one, William Byrd. Right. BYRD and another one maybe not so well known to you Thomas Wilkes, but I actually know of this composer too he um when i was learning um what tone painting was in a music class they used a, a piece um of his oh. about uh queen elizabeth as the uh you know the purest of virgins and uh it had all these great images of these um these deities, you know, these minor deities running up a hill to meet her and had all these like sort of tone painted things. It's really cute. It's not on this album, unfortunately. It would have been fun to talk about, but uh, we have other interesting stuff. Anyway, the album in question is um, called Tom and Will, uh, Wilkes and Bird 400 Years. This is performed by the King's Singers. They are the uh, choral group and the accompanying instrumental group is Fretwork, who play viols. So that's what you're going to hear on this album. It's on the Signum Classics label, which is uh, from Great Britain. Okay, so Bird and Wilkes both died in 1623, 400 years ago this year. They were from different generations, though. You know, they weren't like me and Russ or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, Bird died when he was in his 80s, and Wilkes died at the younger age of 47. Ooh. It's like almost half his age. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. The two of them also had wildly contrasting characters. As you might imagine, given Wilkes, that Wilkes was 47 years old when he died. Wilkes has been singled out for being the most insubordinate member of an unruly (laughs) choir at Chichester. Oh, those choir boys. Call the police. (laughs) He was admonished for being drunk in public in 1613. Yeah, some things never change, I guess. And was, along with 10 other choirmen reprimanded for failure to attend cathedral services. Oh, that would Mm -hmm. make the... uh, the priest a little angry yeah. while you're in the choir if you're not going to the cathedral service. Yeah, They sound more like a gang to be honest. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, Wilkes was finally dismissed as organist and choirmaster in 1617 for his notorious drunkenness and outrageous blaspheming. Oh. Now, now you got to keep in mind, it, it isn't like today where you, you know, you're maybe you're want to serve your church and you go and you sort of, you know, do some music and you're respectful. This was a major position to hold, and Mm. it didn't really matter. You know, everybody would have been Christian at the time in in England, you know, right? But um, you wanted these posts because they they gave you status and they were high paying as well. Yeah. But he didn't really seem to uh, be able to settle down. Uh, He did remain in his post as a singing man, though. He was in the choir. Mm. Uh, Wilkes was unreformed the remainder of his life, and it was noted that he continued to utter curses and oaths that both profaned the service and outraged those who were present. <laughs> I think I read something that the uh, the Surrealists or the Dadaists used to interrupt church services in Paris at the beginning of the 20th century huh. in much the same way. Anyway, he ended his days, this is Thomas Wilkes, in London and died in the house of a friend. And the friend, ironically, was named Henry Drinkwater. <laughs> How did things like that happen? <laughs> <laughs> anyway... William Byrd on the other hand was a different type. Uh, He remained faithful to his uh, Catholic faith in mostly Protestant England at the time until his death and can be found in contemporary court documents petitioning the rights of fellow Catholics. Hmm. So Byrd was a good guy. He stood up for his fellow Catholics. He had high status in society, was immune from persecution because of that high status. Hmm. He attracted the patronage of some of the greatest personages of his time. And I think that includes Queen Elizabeth, who will... Not not the one that recently died, but the one (laughs) from the the Renaissance, who uh, Shakespeare was... uh, Bird and Shakespeare, incidentally, were contemporaries. So I don't know that they knew each other, though. Anyway, we hear their work side by side on this album. And it's quite a... It's an album of with a lot of variety on it. So yeah. if you like Renaissance music, it's uh, this is it's really fun. You have some serious tunes, you get some more fun tunes, and then there is one or two sacred ones. Although this is mostly a secular mm-hmm. album, all right, we start out with a sacred work. William Byrd, "Praise Our Lord, All Ye Gentiles," and this is what's known as a sacred anthem. So this and there's another one. There's another sacred work to bookend the mostly secular work on this album. There are one or two other. Quasi-religious ones, but you could think of this as a secular sandwich with sacred bread. Anyway, <laughs> this isn't one of those overpowering choral recordings. Like sometimes when you hear like a Renaissance mass, mm. the voices just come in and really, with all this grandeur, they just kind of hit you. No, not here. This is. Um, it sounds like one voice to a part. First, yeah, it would yeah. have to be. There are only five of them, I think. There are vials, and it falls gently on the ear. This is a really uh, Renaissance quality that you see. In movies, you know, this kind of um, everything is gentle, people are wandering around, you know, and you have the uh, mm. the quiet vials or the, in the background. Um, I'd characterize the conjunct legato vocals and strings as creamy sounding. Do mm. you think? One word that just keeps
0: uh, coming up in my notes with this one is movement. So rather than being hit with sort of walls of voices – you're getting all these interweaving lines, which are really interesting, and that yeah. was a lot of the joy to follow for me—the constant, you know, movement of those voice lines.
1: Yeah, they kind of we- weave around, sort of like uh, spaghetti. You know, you right. kind of, and uh, they're all the lines also are very conjunct, which mm-hmm. is the opposite of disjunct. Disjunct line would be one that leaps, like say eighths or. Yeah. Just wide where whereas conjunct would go to the second, the third, and then come back mm-hmm. down again. Yes, so they're smooth. Yeah, smooth. Think of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. That's a, you know, Freud, That's a conjunct line. Yeah. And
0: the result is you get a lot of really interesting passing harmonies that come up through here yeah. that I found intriguing, too.
1: Yeah, they're, as always, right? Yeah, in, the in the Renaissance, because Renaissance, they, yeah. didn't, they didn't nail down the uh, the classical eras, um, what's acceptable as um, right. <laughs> harmony, yet. Let's move on. William Byrd has the second track, If Women Could Be Fair. Oh, so there are six um, vocalists in the uh, King Singers okay. on this album. And here we're hearing Christopher Brewerton as the soloist. This is called a consort song, If Women Could Be Fair. And the lyric warns of colluding with ladies of the night. Ooh. And that's uh, quite a change from yeah. uh, Praise Our Lord, <laughs> Lady <laughs> yeah. Gentiles. Boy, they really just uh, <laughs> went yeah. went to the other end of the... Uh, the moral Mm. spectrum there. Anyway, the text is by uh, Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford. He lived from 1550 to 1604. And if you look at the text, it's rather hard to pull the meaning out of. It has a lot of these Renaissance uh, idiosyncrasies of language. It's sung monophonically, meaning um, like a song, right? and uh, features Mm. an accompanying pizzicato viol. The vocals are falsetto, that's um, Brewerton is a countertenor, and the plucked accompaniment is all produced by vials. You'll kind of hear something that sounds like a like a lute maybe, maybe a heavy lute. But no, these are all vials being plucked in harmony. For the ver- third verse, there are a lot of voices. They're scattered and the harmony has appeared. So it starts monophonically, everybody's singing the same note. And then the harmony develops and then it gets scattered at the end. Very interesting composition. Track three, we hear um, Thomas Wilkes for the first time. Say dear, when will your frowning leave? This features <laughs> Edward Button on countertenor and Jonathan Howard as the bass, and they're all, they are the soloists. And the theme of melancholy in a madrigal, which is what this is, madrigals came from Italy. They're a style that uh, was imported. And Wilkes made the madrigal his domain in English music. This one has weepy viols accompanying the equally weepy vocalists. Um, each line continues a different vocal arrangement, the first two solo, the final in harmony for the whole ensemble. So there's a lot of ear candy in the uh, arrangements mm-hmm. that made by the King Singers and uh, Fretwork for these um, this tune and a lot of them. Next we have uh, Thomas Wilkes again, like two proud armies. <laughs> this <laughs> the, the lyrics of this one liken the courtship of a man and woman to battle. And this mm-hmm. was pretty common with Wilkes and it became common in the Baroque era as well. Courtship Mm. is like a battle. The arrangement is playful and charming. Harmonies are generally vertical, but scatter as the piece goes on. Track five, Thomas Wilkes again. Pavant number three, an instrumental for viols Mm. only. This is legato, has that creamy sound, very conjunct and very sad, as this type of ensemble and dance often are. At this point, I should mention this album is beautifully recorded. Mm. And to be honest, that's often the case with choral or viol albums. You can get really close to them with the mics and not... uh, be surprised by their um, sound level. It's, uh, it's got a real intimacy to it as well. Track six, Thomas Wilkes, Thule, The Period of Cosmography. <laughs> it's, it sounds kind of like a progressive rock uh, yeah. album title. <laughs> anyway, this one um, is a, according to the booklet, a poetical musical tour de force. I'll take their word for it. Thule is a metaphorical term for a distant place beyond the known world. Uh, But Wilkes describes it with a reference to the Icelandic volcano Hekla that appears in the uh, the second or third line. The general theme of the poem has been debated, but seems to be that nothing can be more strange than those induced by the unsteady progress of love. Now, I took a look at these uh, lyrics and really couldn't make head or tails of their meaning, so I'll just um, take their word for it. It's all in English, by the way. It has a rather playful, bouncing, separate Mm -hmm. entry of the various vocals. Uh, Tones are staccato, so all of the syllables are discernible in the polyphonic texture. To keep up interest, the vocal entries and approach to sound is varied in each verse. There's some great chord changes in this work, too. This is one of Russ's Mm. favorite types of things, especially when chords lean into a new section of the verse in which the texture becomes more blended and sonorous as opposed to scattered and dancing. Track seven, Thomas Wilkes again. What joy so true. We have soloists in this one. Three of them, Edward Button, Julian Gregory, and Patrick Dunacci. I don't know that I said that last name right, but we'll see. Mm. It's a concert song that could be described as a verse anthem more suited to the church. It starts with the countertenor singing solo. That's going to be Edward Button, accompanied by viols. Uh, He has beautiful phrasing and vowel sounds. I really enjoyed his uh, approach. The second verse is sung by the ensemble. Uh, the tenor, Julian Gregory, sings the second verse. And uh, I like the, this approach of changing the voice for different verses. It sounds like it's being handed off, sort of like a relay yeah. race. Uh, the ensemble always repeats the last two lines, and Patrick Dunici comes in for a countertenor duet for the third verse. Uh, the fourth and final verse is sung by the three previously heard soloists together, and probably along with the choir. Nice arranging here. Track 8, In Nomine a four by Thomas Wilkes. The In Nomine section of the Benedictus part of the Mass uh, was detached as a separate work in the Renaissance era and copied in a variety of instrumental sources. And it became this composition template, this is the booklet that I'm reading from, for generations of composers. So s- students, I guess, um, studying composition and composers themselves, up to the time of Henry Purcell. Wilkes' three settings, we're going to hear three of them, this is the first, demonstrate the variety of ideas which can be inspired by a single tune. This is a lighter texture for the viols. We hear the higher ones only at the beginning with the lower instruments playing more softly to allow the higher voices to float freely. It's a very nice composition. Track eight. Moving on to track nine, we hear from William Byrd again. And we're setting up kind of a dual track uh, situation here, which I'll explain in a moment. William Byrd, Ye Sacred Muses, and Patrick Dunacci is the soloist here, counter tenor. This piece is an elegy written for the death of Thomas Tallis, who was Byrd's mentor, colleague, and friend for much of his life. Hmm. The viols are deep, closely harmonized, and have that mournful feel we often get from a consort. Donacci's voice contrasts well with the other tenors, Edward Button. His tone is more diffuse at the edges and brings a completely different quality, really. So if you think countertenor voices are just high and sound the same, try to compare these two guys. They actually sound very different. I'm enjoying the variety, not only of the material, but of vocal coloring of this album. Okay, track 10. We get a contemporary composer, James MacMillan, commenting sort of on uh, William Byrd's work with his music. It's called Ye Sacred Muses. It's a contemporary reimagining of Byrd's elegy. Like Byrd, MacMillan is Catholic. He is, in fact, very Catholic because I think just about every work that he composes has something to do with Catholicism. So it's nice having one Catholic uh, composer honoring another. Um, the haunting uh, last words of Bird's elegy, which is, Taos is dead and music dies. Ooh, devastating. <laughs> anyway, uh, they're changed by uh, Macmillan to Will, meaning William Byrd, is dead and music dies. And despite this being set for vials, Macmillan sets them to sound more like a contemporary ensemble. Um, you'll hear this right away. The arrangement yeah. of the vocals is very much of the late twentieth, early twenty-first century. Harmonies are less—probably sonorous isn't the right word—but they don't like all blend and sort of in the way that the uh, the close harmony of the Renaissance does. These are all sort of they're harsher harmonies here, but they're never the point of being unpleasant. Uh, the various sections show a lot of variety of harmonic spacing and instrumental technique. Uh, they can seem otherworldly to our more contemporary ears in the context of this album. There are a lot of solos dispersed in the piece for the singers, each taking his in an understated way, wanting to blend in with the texture. There's an interesting climbing harmony towards the end in the viols, in the sixth minute, and a lovely resolution at the end. But these uh, compositions do stand out on this album. <laughs> the uh, the harmony is totally different. Anyway, track 11, back to Thomas Wilkes. Another in nomine. This is an instrumental work. And after that Macmillan piece, this sounds like... Another era, which it is, <laughs> but uh, it's more, more calm, let's say. The harmonies are less adventurous in keeping with their time. It's mournful and pretty like the previous in nomine. And uh, track 12, we have Thomas Wilkes' Hark O Ye Lovely Saints Above. Uh, this is one of Wilkes' most popular major goals, and it has uh, a La's in it following each verse. And they're pretty characteristic of his more popular uh, pieces it's happy and cheerful especially due to the falalas it's got a festive dancey quality to the vocal rhythms there's a little amusing tone painting on the words why weep ye okay so I mentioned the Thomas Wilkes I learned about tone painting mostly from Thomas Wilkes or word painting it's illustrated by the ensemble where the words are stretched out in a heavier mournful manner when they sing the words why weep ye you'll hear this right away it really stands out but the mood is only temporary for these words and then the dancing resumes it's pretty funny so that's track 12 let me make sure you hear that track 13 thomas wilkes death hath deprived me this is an elegy composed to the memory of thomas morley and it's one of the highlights of this album i like the way death is isolated from the rest of the text at the beginning uh, by the music slow mournful polyphonic setting with some beautifully blended harmonies and some rhythmic variation in the middle Track fourteen, we get our second um composition by a contemporary composer. Now Wilkes, in the previous piece, Death Hath Deprived Me, is um mourning the death of his I don't know if it was his teacher, but someone a composer he knew, Thomas Morley. And here Roderick Williams is um commenting on that. This is a contemporary reimagining of Wilkes' elegy. It's called Death Be Not Proud, after the uh I think the John Donne poem. Uh no elegies survive for Byrd and Wilkes themselves, so the two on this album stand in their absence. Interesting, huh? Nobody yeah. wrote for a bird in wheels. Yeah. That's sad. Anyway, the harmony in this uh, is given to the viols at the beginning, make this sound like a Renaissance era piece. So you wouldn't know this was a contemporary composition yeah. until a minute and 36 seconds in <laughs> when we start hearing the harmony straying from would have, would have been expected from the Renaissance era. It does reserve, revert back to Renaissance era harmony at certain points. The vocals start at the two minute and 29 second mark. And now we're squarely in the 21st century with some of the jarring harmonies we hear like in the fifth minute. Uh, this really stands out due to the harmony like the Macmillan piece. Uh, the rhythm gets more jumpy and the various vocal registers are scattered, coming together on Why Swellest Thou Then? At 6 minutes to 16 seconds, the smooth, buttery Renaissance-style harmonies are heard again on the viols and here, from the words One Short Sleep Past. The vocals are smooth, they're Renaissance-like mm. too. Until the word eternally, when they leap back into the 21st century again. The end of the piece is haunting and weird in a rather enjoyable (laughs) way. This is a pretty interesting composition. It was rather clever. Really kept you on your toes. Really didn't know what was coming. Track 15, Thomas Wilkes. The the third and final in nomine of the album. We're in the comfortable, smooth Renaissance-era sound with conjunct melodic lines. I kind of like the way they reset us back into the sound world of the Renaissance with these in nomine yeah. works after the two uh, contemporary compositions. Track 16, William Byrd, Who Made The Hob? Christopher Brewerton and Nick Ashby are the soloists. This is a consort song, which is akin to the major goal, but it has voices, well, they all had voices vials together. It's an English invention, the concert song. This one is a short, boisterous dialogue between two rustic characters about the pursuit of a maiden called Silvana, ending with a trail of protests which say, yet love I must or else I die. There's a Shakespearean like drunken type rhythm and melody to this. I think of Purcell's Fairy Queen when the fairies are pinching um one of the characters and he's, he's drunk and kind of sings <laughs> off key. We get a little bit of that too here. It's uh, very catchy. Both singers are baritones and I think uh, Christopher Brewerton is the uh, more drunken sounding of the two. The other one contrasts a bit. Track 17, Bird, the sweet and merry month of May. Ooh, coming soon, Mm. springtime. This is a major goal, and it's one of the few written by William Bird. A very happy, welcoming of spring, and it's bright and appealing. And if you remember Josquin's El Grillo, a personal favorite of mine, The Cricket, it kind of has that catchy quality too. Mm. Track 17. Track 18, William Bird. This is two tunes, Browning and The Leaves Be Green. Browning is a monophonic folk tune with the words, The leaves be green, the nuts be brown, they hang so high, they will not come down. And that's it. We just hear those words (laughs) repeated in different registers by different singers and singing solo. So next we have uh, the viols providing support for the uh, monophonic tone with their slow but melodic accompaniment. And we hear it in the bass first and the vocals don't appear again until two and a half minutes later. And the two-line lyric to Browning is repeated, as I said, in different voices. Track 19, William Byrd, Alack, When I Look Back, featuring Julian Gregory as the soloist. It's a consort song that could be described as a verse anthem. And the lyric ponders the follies of youth. This is rather heavy and sad and it's lamenting lyrics. It's sung by a solo voice that's not uh, indicated oh it is indicated Julian Gregory I already said that verses are ended by the ensemble of voices singing in harmony finally we reach the final track William Byrd O oh lord make thy servant Elizabeth so a more sacred work it's a prayer for the health and well-being of his principal patron the queen this has a beautiful full harmony of the sacred style really different from what we've heard yeah. so far this is really full on some pretty interesting harmony from the 49 second mark that should stand out Rather surprising, to this work on this album, this smooths out as the composition goes until we get a very smoothly realized Amen at the end. This is an immediately appealing album that's an ideal introduction to the music from this era and to the music of these two composers. There are a variety of compositions, as I said, some done in a lively, playful style, while others catch the mournful quality of the darker compositions. The recording is excellent and completely transparent, with middle voices easy to pick out of the texture, I guess depending on your equipment. And the arrangements and programming of the works are done in a way to keep the ear engaged with timbral, rhythmic, and stylistic variety. It's an excellent way to celebrate these two composers' anniversaries, and we will be hearing from uh, William Byrd again in a few weeks.
0: Oh, cool. I'm always up for renaissance vocals they always put me in a good mood yeah. i like this recording a lot i most of all as i mentioned the interesting movement in the compositions as you say the lines of vocals don't have a lot of big leaps so mm-hmm. they sort of flow nicely resulting in interesting harmony but also the songs go in unexpected directions, so it's not predictable. Uh, Renaissance music has a rather unpredictable nature compared to, you know, the Baroque, where usually you can logically figure out where things are going. Uh, Also, some of these tunes have a really joyful bounce in the rhythms, in the phrasings of the vocalists, so I liked that a lot. There's a sense of energy that comes through them. And then fretwork's kind of sparse. Viols, the instrumentation is light. But the interesting timbres are nice to enjoy on those little instrumental pieces as well in the backing. So you get a little mixture. And as Mike mentioned, the programming, you get a little reset after the contemporary pieces, too. And Mm. they stand out in contrast, make you think about things, you know, from how music changed in these different periods. And you get some more of that modern harmony. But all in all, it, it lingers in your mind and makes you want to go hear it again. So, yeah, I like this recording a lot.
1: I did too. So, yeah, a good one for the anniversary. All right, next we have a uh, the seventh recording yes. that we're going to talk about on this uh, podcast <laughs> from a composer that has become near and dear to us, mostly because uh, his main researcher has also become near and dear to us. That's not really why. We we like it because we like yeah. his music. So, But Daniel Bernardson, our friend yeah. and friend of the podcast, helps us with that a lot. And he actually visited us in Japan. So yeah, he visited us. And, uh, <laughs> go out with him and discuss uh, Randitsky and his, um, his, his research with him. Right. It was really interesting.
0: And he gave us the scores for this in advance, and I enjoyed uh, using the scores as I listened to this. They were enlightening, and I believe the scores for this are also on the Ranitzky Project page, so if you want to find scores for this or any other Ranitzky works, there's a lot of them there. And you can also hear our interview, that's interview number three, if you uh, search through our archive with Daniel and the conductor here who's conducted all of these recordings on Naxos. We've done non-Naxos recordings with different ensembles, but that's uh, Merrick Stillitz. and that's a really enlightening interview. We learned a lot about the music there, and the releases just keep coming, and we'll keep talking about them as they come out.
1: Yeah, this is um, volume five in the Naxos series, uh, orchestral Works. Um, this one has a uh, ballet called uh, Das Listige Bauernmädchen, which translates as the cunning farmer girl. <laughs> Look out for those farmer girls. <laughs> yeah. And there are two other pieces, "Forchtelung" and uh, Quodlibet, quote Liebit, uh Contradance. And this is performed by, of course, the Czech Chamber Philharmonic Orchestra, Pardubice, by Marek Stiletz, And this is on the Naxos label. Um the notes in the booklet are by Daniel Bernardson. Yes. And I'll be uh quoting from them liberally because <laughs> we really need to in order to understand some of the uh the scenario here. It's it's a little um it's actually quite interesting. I wrote a reminder here. Uh, Renitsky was born in the southern Moravian village of Neureich, which is today Novarice in the Czech Republic. So he's technically Czech, or I guess you could call him mm. Bohemian from the time. I had completely forgotten that. <laughs> so oh, really? I'm glad that, I'm glad that uh, Daniel mentioned it again in the booklet. Anyway, he was a composer that was much, um, whose music was much loved by the Empress Marie Therese, the second wife of Franz II who was an important musical patron in Vienna at the turn of the 19th century, going into the 19th century. Anyway, her music collection has provided us a lot of Renitsky's surviving works. That's how we know them. And the ballet uh, Das listige Bauernmädchen, which you're going to hear here, is one of them. Okay, the first 22 tracks on this album are, <laughs> are the ballet. Don't worry, we're not going to go track by track through this one, as I, I think I can sum a lot of them up uh, pretty quickly. Anyway, what this is, it was composed sometime between 1795 and 1805, so we're not really sure. That's after the death of Mozart, by the way. And mm-hmm. um, that would be, uh, 1803 is a magic year in classical music. That was when Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica, premiered. So things were slowly changing after that. Anyway, there's no ballet libretto or scenario surviving for this work. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that um, Giovanni Paisiello's opera Il Matrimonio Inaspettato, or The Unexpected Marriage. I hate when that happens, don't you? Yeah. On the stage, it's okay, but uh, in real life, no. <laughs> 1779 um, was known as Das Listige Bauernmädchen in German translations. Hmm. And the plots line up with what we hear in the ballet score. So we're guessing here, and I guess Daniel is guessing too, that this is in fact the story of this ballet. Basically, it's a uh, self-made rags-to-riches farmer named uh, Tulipano, has bought a marquisate, and he's made himself a marquis, and arranges a marriage between his son, Giorgino, and the Countess Olympia di Sarzana. Hmm. Okay. But Giorgino loves Vespina, a wealthy neighboring farmer girl. You know, it's a good thing she was wealthy, because this would be a big (laughs) problem if she wasn't. So um, she impersonates the Countess, So she's cunning, you see. She impersonates the Countess. Tulipano blesses the young couple. And when the real Countess arrives, Tulipano doesn't recognize her. She's outraged and has two of her squires challenge the father and son to a double duel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I love ballet and opera, don't you? Anyway, Tulipano and his son are about to lose. But the Vespina's servants come and chase the adversaries away. Tulipano marries his son to Vespina, then discovers the deception. And to remedy the countess's offended honor, Tulipano offers his own hand in marriage to her. She accepts. This is a double marriage. Everybody's happy. I don't know. Anyway, but the Countess got the older guy. <laughs> I hope she's happy with that. All right. So anyway, this um, starts out with a, a very rustic setting. Now, we're going to do something here that we uh haven't done before. We're going to give you a, a few, not many musical samples from the recording. And we're going to start with this um, rustic setting that sets it all off. Uh, Let's listen. And there you have it. Uh, Energy in the recording is good, as you heard as is the sound quality. Uh, detail emerges. Um, this recording has more of a matte finish to it than a glossy one. This is a, a sound that I associate with um, Middle and Eastern Europe. They, you know, Remember we talked about the Superfon label mm-hmm. and how they get that less glossy sound. This has a real rustic character to it and uh, a triumphant ending to the cheerful overture. Next we hear a series of lively dances starting off the orchestra and really lifting our spirits. We get to track six and... Um, Judging by uh, Daniel's notes, this would be a uh, Giorgino's serenade to Vespina. And he's apparently playing it on a guitar because there's a very pretty, I guess, guitar arpeggios that we hear. A real surprise, really surprising well, it's change. It's a mandolin, right? Oh, it's a mandolin. Yeah. Well, it could be a, could be a lute too. I'm not really sure. Is it a mandolin? It's you mandolin. looked at the score, yeah, so. Mandolin. Okay. It's a surprise though. <laughs> it really is a surprise. Had, you know. had, so it's a score there, yeah. It's accompanied by gentle pizzicati in the bass. And uh, we have to hear this. Let's get a sample of that. Okay, I can imagine narrative happening over that. Pretty sound and a little unexpected given what we've heard in the first five tracks. And we get into some more narrative music. Pretty, um, you know, what we expect of the time as the story goes on. In track nine, there's a march, and this heralds the arrival of the false countess, Vespina, according to Daniel's notes. It sounds pretty high-spirited, maybe uh, echoing the uh, comic quality of uh, Vespina disguising herself as the, count, as the countess. There's also this um, really sad cello line here that I really enjoyed, and I want to give you this as uh, a sample, too. Okay. All right, we go on from there. There are a few more dances and um, narrative material. And um, when we get to track 16, we hear trumpets, and uh, this is where the uh, duel happens um, in track 16. This is number 13 in the, um, in the ballet itself. And by the way, some of these um, ballet numbers are divided like 12, and then there's 12 and a half. <laughs> That's a, mm-hmm. The numbers don't always go with the way the tracks go. So the trumpets herald the duel. The music sounds more urgent in track 16. And this particular section has less of a repetitive quality than the dancier sections. The the dance-ier sections are really setting off the uh, dancers on the stage, you know, a, ch- a chance to show what they can do. So um, they're, they're very repetitive. But the more narrative sections um, sort of move the uh, narrative forward a bit in the, musically. The opening of uh, track 17 is played entirely by winds, which is very characteristic of Ranitsky and a little unusual for the time given the music of, say, Haydn and Mozart. It's got a bouncing rhythm that's really charming and uh, not heard often over the wind ensemble. Okay, we have some more country dances. Track 19, we have uh, a question and answer sort of um, quality to this uh, melody. The answer is rather comical. The answer by the wind sounds like a kind of like a car horn honking to me. I like the uh, feel of that particular track, track 19. In track 21, we get a uh, moderate tempo which also has an appealing lilt to the melody, and I love the orchestration of this particular track. Finally in track 22, a contra dance. We're back to a rustic droning bass like we heard at the beginning. Has the sound brightened from the beginning of the piece? I don't know, maybe I got used to the the sound quality throughout, which is very good, I have to say. But I think it it sounds like a little brighter at the end.
0: Yeah, I picked up a few things in this work that I really found quite interesting, and I was glad to have the score to look through just go back a little ways a couple harmonic things that are really nice because most of the keys are kind of what you imagine in the classical period The different movements have kind of a logical progression of keys but on uh, track 12 i skipped over this we we had talked about this number nine uh, catch the surprise at the end Uh, it's in the key of f and the (laughs) right at the end you're going to get a F seven chord with the E flat in it, and it really sticks out. Yeah. And so the next movement is in you know B flat. So you've got your five seven chord, but you don't know that's coming. And after the gap, so it's kind of a a little wake up nod. And I had to go back and make sure that I actually heard what I thought I heard. And then I looked in the score and I said, oh yeah, that's a nice little uh, kind of joke. I don't think I've heard that uh, done quite in that way.
1: Yeah, that's the end of track twelve to the beginning of track thirteen. Yeah. And there's one other really
0: uh, nice change, that's in uh, track 19. Here you're in the last section of it, and you're in uh, B-flat major, and the last section of that work, which goes into like a 6-8 triplet feel, uh, the previous part was in 2-4, uh, and it goes from B-flat to D major, so there's this real lifting and brightening effect before it goes you know into those last sections and um, so having the uh, score there to confirm what I thought I was hearing in both of those spots were really interesting but I liked uh, this piece it's got those great melodies everywhere that Runitsky is really good at he's such a great he's a good melodist yeah, yeah melodist and also what's nice in here is the varied instrumentation you get a lot of winds but they're used differently in different places there's a lot of really good bassoon parts and the key changes, as I mentioned, and it's really quite rhythmic in these different dances and uh, getting different feelings and moods by changing up the time signatures and tempos throughout. So you really want to be watching what the story was uh, to, to go with this music. But I imagine that it really pushed the story along with whatever was going on on stage. So I, I found it light and entertaining, but very well crafted and yeah, enjoyable piece would have been nice to have been
1: there, right? Yeah. With all those ladies with their powdered wigs and, yeah. <laughs> you know. Okay. So um we move on. Tracks 23 through 29. There are a lot of tracks on this yes. album. They're all really short, so they're separate um, short movements. There's a piece called Furstelungen, uh, which means, it could be translated imagination or even fantasy, so you can think about yeah. it like that. It's a divertissement, zum. Uh, The 13th of February, 1803, so it's from the year 1803, and it was apparently a staged work. There's no scenario surviving, but there must have been plenty of pantomime, judging by the imaginative score, as Daniel tells us in his notes. Okay, so it starts with an introduction. It is a very imaginative score, in fact. It has a big, ominous Largo opening even though it says adagio. I, th- I thought this was slower than adagio, but still, it, it sounds ominous. Uh, there's not much room ambience. The sound is closed in and has that matte finish, and the work itself has some interesting orchestration with an English horn, I think. See, mm. I should've looked at the score. I would know what it was. was oboe it- here, I think. Oh, it's an oboe here? Oboe, okay. bassoon, horn, yeah. It sounded reedy to me, so I was thinking. Okay, it plays a phrase that starts in with an octave you know, leap, which I thought was really interesting. Track 24, the Allegro, cheerful, chirpy, spring-like classical era theme with an interesting bridge and interrupted phrases and gliding second theme. And uh, we hear them repeated after some intermediary material. Track 25, the Andante, and then moving to Allegro, is dreamy, answered by accented chords, followed by a short phrase, a creative use of the winds in this movement as is nice characteristic of Reniski's yeah. Yeah, music. Okay, moving on, track 26, uh, number three in this um, in this suite. A guitar and flute start this uh, chipper spring-like movement off, and one can easily imagine a light pantomime being acted out of the stage to this. This is really pretty. I like the orchestration here. Track 27, Allegro, has a full orchestra, has charming melodies. There's a piccolo, I think. Yeah, piccolo. Yeah, sounding like a fife with drums at one point. So put me in the mind of the uh, American Revolution there.
0: Pick a little oboe bassoon trumpet and I thought I got a kick out of this soldier's drum. Soldier's drum. Yeah. So not a big bass or maybe one of those. snare um, drum. Yeah. The snare it drum, It sounds yeah. like a snare, but maybe it's a a bigger or more heavier weighted one. And I
1: seen, you know, I think about that. There's a famous um, kind of painting of these three colonial army, uh you know, yeah. American colonial army with the flag, you know. Yeah, the, I know what the, the program, yeah. yeah. And the other one has a drum. I imagine it must have been a drum like that. Daniel mentions this could be a soldier saying farewell to his love in the pantomime as he goes off to battle. Track 28 is a march, and the string march is bold and martial. It acts as a rondo, as we hear different themes in between, uh, most of them quieter and more flowing. And the final track is a minuet. Uh, The flute returns to take the fleet melody, after which a droning bass supports wind instruments playing in harmony. And then this repeats, so it's a little more rustic. Finally, track 30, we get a separate piece, uh, Quod Libet on 13 February, 1803, and this is the final contra dance of that. Now, a Quod Libet, if I remember, there's one of these in um, Box Goldberg Variations, is a set of popular tunes that kind of get mixed together, and you're supposed to sort of invent something on them, and that's apparently what's happening here. It picks off where the previous divertissement left off. It's kind of a parody piece, a Quod Libet. It uses a lot of borrowed material. And often from popular tunes of the day, the audience would recognize them. Daniel tells us this, quote, Liebet features a sizable collection of original and borrowed ballet numbers and popular dances. And the Contra Dance theme frames a host of contrasting sections with descriptive headings like illness, labor, happiness, gallop, caprice, beast of burden, bear, and judgment. It would have been nice to follow along the score and actually figure out where these were. Anyway, it starts with a fast Siciliano rhythm in the melody, answered by a bright outburst from the orchestra. The opening repeats, and then there's a melting string and wind section following at 2.15 or so, 2 minutes and 15 seconds. The opening material repeats, and seems to act as a rondo at this point. The quiet section charmingly orchestrated is followed by a rough sounding theme with strong bowed accents, maybe that's the labor section, and after that we hear a pastoral dance and the contrasting sections keep coming. In the eighth minute, we hear strong droning basses and insistent accents on the chords. This must have been very entertaining for people who weren't looking at the score. You would just have to Hmm. identify the sections. It must have been surprising. Okay, all of these themes peek in from time to time as the material heads to its final cadence. Very charming work. Okay, so at 78 minutes, this album is packed with music, and most of it, of course, is given to the opening ballet, which is conducted with the brightness and liveliness inherent in the score by Marek Stilets. The sound quality is good. Um, I've often remarked on the drier, more matte finish to the sound that we hear in recordings from Central Europe. And while this isn't as dry as many of the recordings, like, say, on the Superfund label, it's kind of in that camp. The music itself has a lot of the hallmarks of Ranitsky's style, at the fore, uh, are heavy use of wind harmonies, and we've gotten used to this from hmm. uh, Ranisky's uh, symphonies. A lot of it sounds uh, Mozartian, especially in the more dancey or the um, narrative um, parts of the ballet, and many of the sections are short and repetitive in the ballet, though there are sections that drive the musical narrative forward too. The Vorstellung and Quodlibet are both works with a lot of charm, meant to entertain, and entertain they do. This really is an album of entertainment music of its period. It's a worthy addition to the ongoing Renitsky series on Naxos, and I still have to say though, my personal you know love of the uh, musical narrative as a symphony. I still like volumes three and four the best. but I would say if you've been following the series, you'll definitely want to hear this. It's really good, and it's very light, so very entertaining.
0: Yeah, great Renitky melodies, that's what stands out to right. me, and also in the ballet. I enjoyed the variety of instrumentation in, you know, each of the movements there to get whatever sort of uh, scene and movement, what was going to be going on there matched. So you get mixes and matches of the different wind instruments over the strings. And so that was kind of fun to hear the variety in there. I thought the performances were really good. And Merrick's conducting brings out the contrasts in the pieces. There's
1: nice dynamics. Yes. Good, good work, Merrick. I should have said more about you. There's <laughs> a lot of
0: action in a, in a ballet like that. So there's sort of key places of motion and contrast. And you could tell that, you know, he was building up to certain points and knew it was coming well. And they anticipate that. And, you know, you're still surprised by it, but so that sounded, um, uh, really confident and i also like the sound quality it's clear you can hear all the parts uh, very well Mm -hmm. and as you say it's not a kind of um, big reverby kind of sound it seems to have just the right room acoustics slightly dry it it works well yeah but enough ambiance that the character of the instruments glows just a little bit I don't know what the venue of the recording was, but I found it pleasing and also detailed enough so that I could uh, really enjoy all the different timbres and make out the lines as I looked at the scores, too. So, another one in the Rinitsky series. I don't know how much music there is that. Oh, they, this probably this a lot, a lot get, considering um,
1: how much uh, these yeah. composers wrote back in the day, but uh, this could keep going on. I Love hope that to it's, see.
0: Uh, yeah, gradually, like the uh, snowball rolling downhill, gathering more listeners and uh, people interested in this music so i'm looking forward to hearing more so keep them coming Indeed, Maxos, i'm on board too i really Matt enjoyed this daniel yeah more runitski please
1: okay now for my final recording i've got uh more music by caroline shaw the title of the album is the wheel it's also the name of one of the um compositions on the album and it's performed by e giardini who are shuichi okada on violin Leah henino on viola Pauline Buet on cello and Erico Minami on percussion and David Violi on the piano. And it's on the Alpha label. Now, this came out in, um, I believe, uh, November or even maybe even October uh, 2022. But I mentioned in January that I would talk about this one. And now I'm finally getting to it now. That's just (laughs) the way the the adult music podcast works. I did want to talk about it. And um, next week, I'm going to do... Incidentally, just a little highlight, all um, women composers for the uh, classical side of things next week. And I wanted to make sure I got this one in too, because I have three other ones for next week. Actually, I have four. One of them I'm only going to mention. But anyway, I have the uh, CD of this. And before I talk about this album, which I really was very interested in, this might be the best um, recording of Shaw's music that I've heard so far, although I'll, I'll compare it to some others too. I need to talk about the CD. All right now. If you're going to go and listen to this on streaming, you're all set. Just uh give it a listen and you can follow along my notes. The CD oh, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, is uh, there, there's a problem with, well, maybe there isn't anymore. There's a problem with the CD if you have this. Um the booklet note follows the track listing on the um on the streaming service which is correct according to Alpha Records. I actually talked to somebody who was representing them and he told me that the uh the streaming uh, order is the correct order. Now that's the order in the CD booklet. The problem is on the CD itself, we don't get <laughs> the order, the, tra- the correct track order. They've messed up the tracks. So if you happen to have this CD, you might want to check. If your first track is six minutes long, you have a CD that is not in the correct order. The first track should be around 10 minutes long. Now I wrote to uh, Alpha Records and they told me that they um, have corrected this and they're gonna send me a new CD. Um, oh. So I'll have to wait probably a month to get this, but uh, we'll find out if they actually did uh, correct it. When I first wrote to them, they told me, oh, yeah, there was a printing problem with the CD booklet, but we've corrected it. But he didn't really understand (laughs) what I was asking him. I certainly hope they did rearrange the track order. I would like this the way it's intended to be heard. I mean, you could always reprogram the CD, but, you know, why would you want to do that when you can just sit down and listen? Anyway, I'll be talking about this on the order it's on on streaming, which is the the correct order so if you have a cd not in the correct order you're going to have to make an adjustment if you have the cd the track order is this number one track one limestone and felt track two the wheel track three gustave legray track four uh boris kerner track five in Manus to us and track six thousandth orange so <laughs> that's comp- the, the first and last tracks have been <laughs> reversed on the cd Anyway, let's go in the order of the streaming, and I'll talk about these tracks. All right, first of all, let's talk about Caroline Shaw herself. Um, she wrote the booklet notes explaining the inspiration and technique behind all of the work on this album. Now, I happen to know that um, Caroline Shaw, because she mentioned this in a note to uh, other pieces on, a, on another album, likes the writing of Marilyn Robinson, and you can sort of tell by her own writing. because She's very um, thoughtful. In her writing, she she tries to go deep on what, what are seemingly very simple things. And yet, she's not complicated. She's almost completely without guile in her reading as well as in her composing. And this is one of the things that I find refreshing about her music, especially in this crazy world that we live in today. <laughs> I don't know how she's uh, remained so sincere. So she's, she's rather a, a rare creature these days. Anyway, her booklet notes are worth reading. And um, I once joked that she's uh, overeducated in the humanities as I personally want to be. I'm overeducated in the humanities too, but not as much as she is. <laughs> she seems to really think about this stuff a lot. Anyway, she seems to be uh, yeah, more overeducated than I am. The first piece on the uh, streaming is Thousandth Orange. and This is for violin, viola, cello, and piano written in 2018. Now Shaw in her notes explains that this is about the tiny revelations that living with something for a long time can open up. Shaw gives the example of still life paintings, where after the 10th or 100th or 1,000th time one paints or looks at or eats an orange, so there's the title, the 1,000th orange, it's just as beautiful as the first time if you're looking at it with fresh eyes. Now, this is interesting to me because I've done a lot of um, Zen meditation, and you're always trying to, well, you don't try, you're trying to work yourself to be in the moment. And when you do that, everything is always new. So I was kind of interested in this idea. And it's the same with playing a piece of music or even a simple cadential figure. More reveals itself with time. I also want to mention, Caroline Shaw has a thing with oranges. Um, her fir- The first album I heard by her, which was uh, featured the Ataka Quartet back in 2019, was called simply Orange. And there's a piece on the album called Orange. I would like to know, What's her deal with oranges? Maybe she'll write to us and let us know. Anyway, she doesn't mention in the notes. Anyway, this starts with uh, four light chiming piano chords, and they play in a repeating pattern. Um, They just keep repeating throughout, Mm. although things uh, gradually change. The strings play sustained chords over the piano chords, then take over for it in the second minute. The two um, sort of patterns reverse with the strings now playing the chords and then the piano... Uh, playing over that a really nice little change there at 3 minutes and 44 seconds there's more movement in the rhythm as the strings play melodic material with repeated notes at 5 minutes and 13 seconds the piano takes over with a quicker version of the opening chords and an extension of them and the material breaks up and creates new textures the cello gets an affecting directly stated melody at the beginning of the sixth minute after which the strings play scattered repeated muted pizzicato notes as the piano intones its chords, which are in a different order now. In the eighth minute, it sounds like we're hearing two, three, four, one now, but I'm not really sure. In the eighth minute, the piano starts playing its chords quietly in the very high end, then in the mid-range as the strings come in with sustained notes. We eventually get back to the pluck chords and the strings, and the piece just ends after one of these chords. Okay, Gustave Le Gray is track two. And this is for Solo Piano. It was written in 2012. Now, on the Adult Music Podcast, we've already heard this work for Piano Trio on the album um, Dance by the Minerva Piano Trio, which we heard Mm. earlier in the year. Shaw says here that when people – this is pretty interesting. This is why I'm really interested in the way she thinks. Uh, She says when people ask her what her music is like, she says it's like sashimi, which we know quite a lot about in that it's made of chords and sequences presented in their raw, naked, preciously unadorned state. Okay, I can hear that.
0: Sounds fishy to me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. We hear Gustave Le Gray in an arrangement for Piano Triogue already, as I mentioned, and this is the original piece. It was originally for Piano. It's a multi portrait of Chopin's Mazurka, opus 17, number 4, a pretty famous one. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, Using some of Chopin's ingredients, overlaid and hinged together with Shaw's own ingredients. It's for solo piano. It was originally written for Amy Yang. Here it's played by David Violi. Okay, so we could hear like in Shaw's beginning, this is her composition now. We can hear the hint of the Chopin mazurka in the way with the repeating chords that she's playing. This extends a bit and the constant repeating chords sort of point to Chopin. Uh, the piece ebbs and flows dynamic in dynamic speed. And then by the time we get to the 3 minute 48 second mark, we hear a direct reference to Chopin's melody. In fact, in this section, the material is really directly lifted from Chopin. I recognize the uh, the, the piano work itself. I think we hear the entire Chopin piece, in fact, with occasional counter melodies of additional material added by Shaw, which is always enjoyable. I, I kind of think about this, if you've ever heard the... um. It, this isn't a virtuoso piece by any means, but um, if you ever heard Godowsky's studies on the Chopin studies, which seems <laughs> extremely redundant and really crazy to me, but he's sort of um, adding his own material to that, and I think she does a little bit of that, although much more subtly than Godowsky did. Those people were really nuts. <laughs> by the way, there's a great recording by marc Andre Amalan of the um, Godowsky Etudes on the Chopin Etudes. In the ninth minute of this piece, Gustave Le Gray, uh, we're hearing new harmonies and rhythmic idiosyncrasies in Chopin's theme. We get away from Chopin in the tenth minute with a chord pattern heard in the bass, and the rest of the piece is, as at the beginning, Shaw's material. All right, the work commissioned for this album, The Wheel, commissioned by the ensemble I Giardini, who we're hearing here. But uh, this is for piano and cello only, and it was composed in 2021. The title comes from Shaw's concept of fragments of chord progressions and melodies that cycle around each other. They're playing different modes along the way. She says the piece, or the second half of it, it's not really clear from her notes, is like finding an internal rhythm and calm in your inner voices and reflections that carries you through when, for example, you're walking alone through a city at night. So you got to imagine yourself there's all these things happening around you, but you're, you've got this sort of still point in your mind that you've calmed yourself down. So it's an abstract idea, but something we're all familiar with from our own experience, so we should relate to this uh, pretty well. The piano's accompaniment of the various sounds on the cello is very minimal in this piece, consisting of quiet, repeated notes on the beat occasionally. There's a buildup of volume in the third minute as the cello becomes more aggressive in its chords. This softens to a piano line, with the cello now accompanying by plucking its strings. The rolls reverse again. I really do like this technique of hers where she'll reverse the roles of the two instruments. It's always very obvious and just noticing it just kind of makes me smile. I really like it. The roles reverse again in the fourth minute. Keep an ear out, this happens often. A crescendo is interrupted with silence at 7 minutes and 24 seconds and we go right back to quieter material. All of it's simple and appealing. There's another crescendo getting loud and breaking through to the higher end of the piano. At the end we have angel-like chords quietly played on the high end of the piano with the cello marking time via pizzicato. I guess she's found her quiet place in her mind at this point. The big throaty tone of the cello helps this piece in its appeal. Track four, called Boris Kerner Kerner's a real person. He lives in uh, Stuttgart, or Stuttgart, I guess we should say, and is the author of a book called Introduction to Modern Traffic Flow Theory and (laughs) Control, The Long Road to Three-Phase Traffic Theory. Uh, Shaw says this work is one in a series based on the phrase, the detail of the pattern is movement, which I guess comes from the book. Anyway, <laughs> this starts with the cello playing a bowed pattern at walking speed. The individual notes are disconnected. At the minute mark, you can hear the rattling of the flower pots. This um is a work for cello and flower pots mm. as percussion. I should have mentioned at the beginning. And you should say they're metallic, too. <laughs> they are. Yeah, they're not the ceramic ones. <laughs> yeah metallic flower pots anyway the flower pots when they come in at the minute mark sound like a muted fire engine bell ringing it's got that kind of tingaling quality that uh, mm. fire trucks had at one point when they had bells now they have sirens right it gets more emphatic the rhythm changes and the flower pots take over by the second minute <laughs> i like that <laughs> sentence the flower pots take, take over it sounds like a horror movie <laughs> anyway, the cello eventually regains the foreground and plays a more syncopated pizzicato line sounding slightly african like a rhythm you'd hear on a mbira so it's got this sort of um continuous kind of rhythm to it. Now uh, the flower pots are back in the lead by the 3 minute and 45 second mark with varying sounds and a syncopated rhythm as the cello starts sawing out double stopped chords. The flower pots grow very loud up to the 6th minute after which there are some cool muted sounds from them and uh, there's a decrescendo at around the six minute 22nd mark the cello resumes its opening line the flower pots get one more quiet appearance before the end track five in manos tuas." this is for solo cello it's also could be played by solo viola but we're hearing the original solo cello here it's based on a 16th century motet by Thomas talus so hey we can link in this right into the uh, previous album <laughs> bird was of course talus's um, friend and uh, Taos was his mentor. The motion, or lack of it, is intended to capture the sensation of a single movement of hearing the motet in Christ Church in New Haven, Connecticut. Cello comes in on chords, playing droning notes, sul ponticello, then pizzicati, then arpeggios. Now I want to mention, I've noticed that throughout her albums for strings, Shaw likes to use all of the effects the instrument is capable of in every piece they appear in. So if we're going to hear a work for cello, we're going to hear it play pizzicato inevitably. We're going to hear it bowed. We're going to hear it play its harmonics. We're going to hear the bow played on the uh, bridge. Every every imaginable effect that's been used is going to be used in her in her music. And she kind of does this, I guess, as different sections, as different expressions of the piece. It's like uh, the totality of what the instrument can do and not what the player can do with it makes up the body of the piece. At the 2 minutes and 55 second mark, we hear plucked arpeggiated chords, then bowed arpeggiated chords. And I'm not really picking up a sense of the talus motet in this piece, uh, but as she says, the piece is based on the sensation that it causes for her. It's an appealing listen, full of interesting sounds produced by the cello. At 4 minutes and 45 seconds, we hear harmonics for the first time in the piece, then a melody plucked out of the instrument, and the talus theme, I guess. We heard this earlier as well, so you do hear it, but it didn't really strike me as... Talus-like, shall we say. But I'm sure it I We'll have to hear the original Talus piece. Anyway, the sixth um, and final movement is a piece called Limestone and Felt for cello and viola. I actually enjoyed this one, I think, the most. The theme is uh, two surfaces, one hard and one soft. Shaw imagines the hocketing pizzicato and peeling motivic cannons, the limestone, as part of a whimsical, mystical, generous world of sounds echoing and colliding in imagined eaves of a Gothic cathedral. These are contrasted with a delicate, meticulous, and almost reverent placing of chords, this would be the felt in the title, that to our ears today sound ancient and precious. So think loud and hard and soft and quiet for this piece. You'll hear the two juxtapositions often. Pizzicati provide all the texture at the beginning, It sounds like the cello is muting its string on certain pizzicati, uh, getting a kind of Asian sound out of the instrument, like a shamisen would make the Japanese Mm. instrument. Chords are plucked out of the higher instruments, giving a thick-stringed, loud lute effect. The entire texture of this work is very appealing, and there's a pop-song-like repeating rhythm. Bowed strings appear at a minute and 55 seconds, but they play in a disconnected way. We hear Sul Ponticello playing at the end of the third minute. There are a lot of effects in this work, as in the previous one, too. At 4 minutes and 12 seconds, swooping, circling bowed figures are heard. A total texture change. It's very appealing, and it's very cool classical music. Okay, so the music here sounds really fun to play, And you get that sense that Idrardini are enjoying themselves when you listen to this album. It's also very direct and uncomplicated. Direct is the key word here. This one goes right into your ear and into wherever it's going to go in your body. Sincerity is the word commonly used to describe Shaw's music. And as I mentioned earlier, in our current partisan world of sniping and trolling on social media, it's especially refreshing music to hear. Sincerity generally implies simplicity, which is the case here. But it's the simplicity in the sense of a great teacher who can make complex topics easy to understand uh, without really losing any of the uh, complexity. It's sort of all implied. The complexity is there, but it's all clearly stated. I mentioned that Shaw thinks of her music as being like sashimi. I'd say it's also like a bowl of ramen because you pretty much <laughs> know what it's going to sound like before you hear it. How the strings will be used especially. You know you're going to hear all of those effects. The approach doesn't vary much, but it's always satisfying like a bowl of ramen. That's why we eat them all the time. So you always go back for more. This album is probably the best one I've heard of our music so far, probably due to the presence of the piano. Because the other two that I liked a lot were both by the Ataka Quartet. We did one earlier, and then there was one before we started the podcast called Orange. And those were all excellent too. So I think you should hear this because I think it'll just sort of It'll just make you feel. It's not particularly cheerful music. It's sort of thoughtful, but it's the the directness of it that's so refreshing. And I think uh, we all need that these days.
0: These are all very sparse works, with a contemplative mood mostly. So I found them sparse easy is to, a good
1: word. Yeah, I found
0: them easy to listen to. It's easy to focus when you've got two instruments. Now in the past, I've found her works to be rather episodic with kind of startling quick changes sometimes. And there are unexpected developments in these compositions for sure, but they seem to follow arcs of development more than what I've heard in her works before. So I found myself more guided through them by what was happening. Yeah, I enjoyed these. My favorite, as with you, limestone and felt. Yeah. I guess I liked it best for the variety of string techniques that are used. Mm -hmm. Uh, the effects achieved by those techniques. In other words, the expression and uh, musical output, and then just the interplay between the viola and cello I found engaging. And so I like that one the best. Anyway, more women next week. All right, and now it's jazz time. And I do not have any theme this week other than all these records were released on the same day. And I wanted to sort of get things timely You know, there's a lot of things coming out for spring, and it seems that in March, the big days were the 3rd, the 10th, and the 17th. So I've got these waves of new releases I'm working through. These all came out on February 24th, and they just struck me as interesting recordings with a variety of instrumentation, and that's why I wanted to get to them all. They do have a, a funky theme, a lot of them, at least two of them do. Yeah, there's some funky stuff going on here. But the first recording we're going to talk about is a little more flute, because a few episodes back we heard the wonderful flute of Isabel Bodenza, and we really liked that. That was flute, including bass flute with organ trio, which really blew us away. If you haven't heard that recording, you got to go back and check that out. And so we've got some more flute here. And we're going to go to Italy with, uh, I guess you say, Michele? Michele, that would be my name in Italian, actually. Yeah. And Michele Gori with the Flute Factor. And this is Dase Sound Lab SRI. I don't know what that is. Uh, It's kind of a cool name, Dase Sound Lab. Ooh, sounds kind of scientific. Scientific (laughs) label here. Anyway, Gori is born in Domodossola, Italy, 1980. And he's one of the... I have no idea where that is, you know? know. No idea myself. You've you've been to Italy more than I have. I've been twice. I haven't been uh, there. Okay. And he's one of the real prominent flute players on the European jazz scene. And he's also a specialist in using the entire flute family and electronics, which will hamper my explanation of what I'm hearing because I often can't tell which register... You know, the, the flutes overlap right. in the family and I don't know sometimes I think it's alto flute or bass flute and as far as the electronics you can see some really cool videos of him on YouTube using loops and mm-hmm. playing over himself and it's all done really subtly and musically so it's really cool but I don't know what he's doing there's no uh, documentation of that for what I could find online on this recording so just know that it's really cool flute things that are going on here, and he's actually also the only Italian flutist to have an academic position as professor of jazz flute. So his background, he graduated in flute at the conservatory G. Cantelli of Novara. He had an honors degree in jazz music at the conservatory G. Verdi in Milan, and also a diploma in jazz flute from the Centre de Informational Musicales in Paris. And he's a jazz professor now and head of jazz department at the Conservatory of Music Emmanuel Chabrier, Clermont-Ferrand, France. And he's got two other albums under his own name, also with the Michele Gori Quartet: My Jazz Flutes and Flute Stories. But here we've got the flute factor. So Gori's on flute, and we've got Roberto Olzer on piano and electric piano, Roberto Mattei on bass and Nicola Stranieri on drums. As I said, I won't uh, attempt to know what kind of effects and things are going on, but there's yeah. some interesting tones that come out. On I couldn't tunes. figure this out either. Yeah. It's sort of. Um... We're going to start out with Revolution, and as Mike said before, a funky... ...ness pervades some of the recordings, and this is a funky one for sure, uh, with Mate giving a four-bar bass intro here, and check out the cool little harmonic diversion that comes right up in the second measure on that funky bass line. Uh, Strenieri and Olzer, who's on electric piano on this track, join in for another round of that intro pattern, and then the melody here is a 12-bar bluesy theme with some really cool alternating chords in the second half of it. And the bass and the flute sync up their lines, which was kind of cool too. You can hear harmonics in the flute, and I don't know how he's doing that. Is this uh, an effect or part of his technique? It just sounds really cool, but they go around this 12-bar pattern twice, and Gordy solos first, and his phrasing is fluid when he weaves his ideas in and out of the chords. Uh, they change of the form to 16 bars for the solos, and after one round of the original funky groove, They change it up to a fast swing with uh, more chord changes added to it. Back to the original groove and an electric piano solo from Olzer. He works into the swing change up too with some very cool rhythmic ideas in his lines. Stranieri gets a drum solo. It's kind of restrained and focuses on the tones that he can get around the drum kit. And then he gets the groove started again for a final run of the melody to a sudden ending. Track two is called Black and Blues. (laughs) It's another (laughs) funky, fun tune, yeah, with a straight, rocky, and heavy beat. They get going with a four-bar intro with the bass and acoustic piano, setting out this groove that leaves a drum hit on the fourth beat. Then Gordy takes the pickup line into the bluesy melody. From the chord changes you hear here, in the fifth and nine bar it leads you to expect oh this might be a 12 bar blues form but that's actually extended to 16 bars with these alternating chords and then a surprise in the last two measures, uh, the harmonies are a little different there 15, 16 bar. And then Gordy is up first for a solo, but here in the solos, they go with a 12 bar blues format. And he has really great bluesy improvisations, cool falling lines, and the slow groove lends itself to short phrases with spaces in them to build up anticipation to whatever idea he comes up with next. Mate gets a bass solo also, and he keeps a rhythmic and syncopated groove in his melodic ideas, and they take the intro line into another melody run to close it out. Track three is Miedo. This is kind of a longing ballad. It's got a soft, Latiny even beat on drum brushes that give it a kind of 8-beat feel. There's a four-bar intro here with acoustic piano and a weighty bass line. It sounds like Gaudi is using one of the lower range flutes here, and the tone is interesting with the subtle vibrato and soft phrasing. The 24-measure melody is minor, but it has a few brighter harmonic twists that lift it up along the way. Uh, Mate takes a bass solo. His tone is really full and ringing with relaxed phrases, and Gaudi follows with a sublime solo where the lines flow out lazily, Is this alto flute, I wonder? Uh, Could be. Uh, He works into the higher range, getting some interesting tonal edges, and he continues on, connecting back to a final time through the melody. Then we've got jazz time for track four, but actually, it's another super funky straight beat to start anyway, with a really tricky syncopated flute melody over the groove, with electric piano back on this one. Sounds like a 24-bar AAB form, Gordy launches off into a solo with lots of fun, fluttering phrases, and after one round of the form, they switch it up to a fast double-time swing with the new 16-measure chord progression. Gordy continues on, taking flight for a few choruses, and he comes up with great melodic ideas that build on each other, even at these speedy tempos. Olzer follows with a electric piano solo, and speedy melodic lines with a few tricky rhythmic licks along the way, and Stranieri he gets a drum solo here, and he works it back to the original straight funky groove into eight measures of the A part of the original melody with the fun final hesitation to finish it up. It's another nice tune of change-up ideas with uh, tempos and feels here. Track 5 is looking forward. It's a very short slow ballad duet for just piano and flute that shows off Gordy's range of tone. It starts kind of melancholy, but builds to a great climax with bright building chord changes and a rising flute line. After a short pause, it comes down to a soft ending. It's very pretty and expressive. And track six, the French girl. Mm. You want to meet her? She's a funky one, too, let's see. Oh, Yeah, I want to yeah. meet this one, then, in that case. <laughs> uh, check out the cool electric piano and bass groove over Stranieri's clicky beat in the 8-bar intro. The flute melody is very seductive, uh, reaching low with some subtle pitch inflections, and the groove has a nice little change-up and push from the 17th measure. Seems like 24 measures, with an extra 2 bars to vamp into the start of Godi's solo, and then they change up to a 12-bar minor blues form. Gordy does a lot of cool stuff here with breathy and funky phrases and building harmonic tension outside of the chords. He pulls off some speedy lines too and ends up way down low. Uh, Matea and Olzer groove out on the intro riff for Stranieri to get busy around the drum kit and he's a very precise drummer. Uh, They work it back into another round of the melody with some added improv lines from Gordi between phrases and a high flute line ending. Track 7. I looked at this word. Tatuzinho. So what is that? Uh, it's probably Portuguese. Yeah, it's Portuguese. And yeah. it's the name for what we call in Japanese uh, marumushi. Those huh. little like bugs with
1: the hard oh, kind of... The ones, th- the, the ones that you crush and they smell really bad? Those? No, are, no. Um, no. These are
0: the okay. ones that roll up into like a little ball. Oh, on okay. like some sort of uh, isopoda or something like that. Mm. It's uh, actually uh, got a samba beat to it. And at first, a uh, fun kind of uh, detached electric piano opening lick. And the flute sounds great on the uh, Latin groove, always like this. And Mate has a real throbbing bass going on here. The melody is a 24-measure theme, with the last segment building up tension with the rhythm. A uh, nice electric piano fills between the phrases. And for the solo break, Gordy picks up on that intro a piano lick we heard, and then an exciting solo with lots of cool breathy articulation ideas and waves of lines. Uh, Olzer gets an electric piano solo with a mix of flowing and connected lines and some cool tumbling figures. Also some fun rhythmic play in there too. Once more through the melody and they finish it up on the fun lick that we heard uh, at the beginning and then before the solos all together at the end. And track 8, fittingly, Au Revoir another short flute and piano ballad duet to end it. It's a 16 measure melody with pretty chord changes, uh, but they turn hopeful, giving you the feeling that we'll meet again uh, after the ninth measure of the melody. Uh, They go around twice with Gotti working subtle improvisations the second time, and you can really enjoy his tone from low register to high and the delicate phrasing that goes along with this very nice expression. So it's a short recording at just 33 minutes, but there's a lot of variety. Funky grooves for sure, fast swing, Latin, and endearing ballads. The compositions and arrangements are fun, often varying the structures and grooves from the melody to the solo passages. Uh, Gordy's tone is distinctive and expressive, great technique matched by melodic improvisations. Rhythm section is tight with Stranieri's precise and measured drumming, nice bass push and solos from Mate and Olzer has some fine solos on piano and electric piano. I'm looking forward to checking out more of his recordings and I'll start with those previous two I mentioned.
1: Yeah, overall this is a really cheerful album and um, it kind of reminded me of uh being with my uh, Italian friends. They kind of <laughs> they're, they're like a lot of these tracks are. And Gordy himself, he seems to like those funky grooves. There are a lot of them on the album. And he's good, really, at every tempo. But I feel like he really comes alive in the the more upbeat tunes. He plays the ballads well as well. Yeah. I don't want to take that away, but uh, I, I feel like he's like at a, you know his um he's reaching his center when he's at the um when he's in a more upbeat tune. In the ballads like Au Revoir, he gets a beautiful, full, heartfelt tone. And uh, also, it's nice to hear the Fender Rhodes. Is that a Fender Rhodes? Yeah, on many it's other tracks. It's just his electric
0: piano. Um, I'm, so I'm not sure if it's a Fender or a different yeah. make. Yeah.
1: Okay, Well, it was nice to hear. Anyway, yeah, I you don't hear tone. enough of it anymore. I I, I had had uh, too much of it in the 70s, but now I kind of <laughs> miss it. You know, It was so long ago. Anyway, well recorded as well. You know, some people may find this to be very closely recorded, but I liked it the way it was. Mm. So I thought it was good. Let's just say that. You yeah. Listen. Check you it know. out. It's
0: always good to hear some jazzy flute. And uh, he, he's yeah. definitely got the chops and ideas to make an exciting recording there. All right, now we're going to go to an album that I really enjoyed as well. Me too. This was my favorite um, jazz album of the week, week, actually. We've got uh, For Good People. Hey, that's us. that's us. Forget about it. (laughs) Um, By Tim Collins. (laughs) (laughs) And this is on um, Edition Collage Label. Also came out February twenty fourth. Tim Collins on vibraphone, Matthias Bublath on organ, Yeah. And Christian Lettner on drums. And well, I was really interested to find out more about Collins, and it turns out he's from Plattsburgh, New York. You know where that is? Yeah, it's way up north. My uncle lived there actually, oh, wow. and uh, but he's been in Munich for the past twelve years. And uh, we heard him previously with Quadro Nuevo on their recording December remember that uh, back in episode 92, that was our Christmas episode, You'll Be Merry. And this Uh is not really a Christmas or holiday recording. It was kind of Christmassy because they've recorded previous uh, Christmas Mm -hmm. music things. So this was just sort of seasonal, but that that was a really interesting recording. and I picked up on his vibes playing from there. Now more on the even gets closer to uh, my old stomping grounds uh, than Plattsburgh uh, in one of these tracks. And I'll get to that later. But uh, Bubleth is Colin's uh, oldest companion here because uh, after studying at, in Linz and then at the Berklee College of Music and the Manhattan School of Music, uh, Bubleth lived and worked in New York for nine years. And the two have known each other uh, since then. And we really loved his recording, Orange Sea, which yeah, where was he him plays on the piano. Piano, right. right? Yeah, and was that really was good. we. One that we discussed back in episode 84, Cerebral Keys. And it also made our best of 2022 recording list. And I saw that uh, he was also an organ player too. And I was waiting to check out some new organ music from him. So I got my wish here. And uh, so this is a really engaging recording that we've got here. Yeah, we got more than our wish here. We got yeah. a few wishes. Uh, so we're going to start out true. with a tune by Tim Collins, Mainline Rush. And Boobleth and Letner get it going with a funky beat for an 8-bar intro. The organ has a descending chord pattern of three chords that return to the original chord. Then Collins joins in with the melody on vibes. It's a cool development over 32 bars. The first section has nicely shaped 8-bar phrases that build off from each other. Then the next section gets more animation, then a lighter harmonic and groove change bridge section with a lighter clicky beat as well, then a final funky push section with more organ swells from Bublith. Collins gets a solo first, starting with some muted mallets and snippets from his melody. He builds it up over the sections, over Bublith's organ hits and pulsing bass, letting the mallets fly with impressive speed. Always melodic ideas uh, from Collins. They save the contrasting bridge section for Boobleth to come in on for his solo and stick to it for a few rounds of lighter organ work. He takes it into the funkier sections, getting bluesier improvisations, into another couple rounds of the final melody section from the beginning with an outro mirroring the intro, but with soft added ideas from Collins. It's a fun and funky start and cool switching around of the different sections of the tune. Track two is Trapped by Bublith. Uh, the drums fill into an eight-bar intro of repeating two-measure organ and vibe figures. That's eight measures of seven-eighth time, which is a bit unusual. Collins takes the flowing melody of sustained notes that contrasts with the busy symbols below for the first 16 bars. There's a real contrasting section of syncopated lines that the vibes and organ work together for seven measures. Maybe that's to emphasize the whole seven idea of the meter. You don't usually hear a a seven-measure phrase, you know. They go around those patterns again. Bublath's solo is next, and he keeps his lines flowing smoothly over the odd meter and staying on repeats of the 16-measure section. Lettner really mixes up the drums expertly underneath with tight fills. They transition to Collins' solo with the contrasting seven-measure section. He weaves happy sounding melodies with relaxed phrasing even when he gets speedier figures going and you can really hear his attacks clearly on the recording and the sound pans left to right in the recording over the range of the vibes if you have headphones on it'll really stand out right. uh, so it's like he's right in front of you uh, with the vibraphones uh, they reset with the intro back into another round of the melody and they get to the contrasting section and jam on the groove for letner to get some tasty drumming time to the end We've got the title track, Tim Collins' original for Good People for track three. Uh, Collins composed the title track in the fall of 2021 after learning about the death of an old friend. This is his quote from his website. In the past few years, I've lost more than a few good people in my life, he says. I wanted to pay tribute to them, but also to the good people who are still here. So it starts out with some light drums and cymbals that lead into a four bar intro that sets a slow beat, but with a good bass pulse in a dreamy atmosphere, a bit gospely with the organ sound here. Collins has written a simple and beautiful melody, and he plays it very gently, adding soft trills and spots. Uh, there's a 12-bar section we hear twice with a contrasting bridge. There's has really cool organ swells from boobleth. You think you're going to hear the first section again, but it changes with a break after nine bars for a solo break from Collins into a funkier groove with a great organ work from Boobleth for Collins to work over. He finds the bluesy spots and mixes in dreamier, smooth phrases, and Boobleth gets a go next with a very soulful solo. The organ sounds great, and he really integrates his bass lines with his bluesy phrases, playing on and on. Collins and Boobleth work a section of ascending lines that lift the feeling into a short eight-measure reprise of the original melody. Very nice tune. Track four, another Collins original, Don't Get Caught. And we'll go a little Afro-Cuban with this one. Collins and Bublath work a tight clave groove for the 8-bar intro with nice fills from Lettner. Uh, the melody section's 32 bars long with Collins working animated phrases over cool modulations. In the second half, it gets more excitement from the fun Cuban organ rhythms that Bublath puts out and the final eight bars have really fun speedy lines from Collins and Bublath that they work together in unison. They reset to the intro groove for a setup for Collins's solo. Lots of speedy mallet work but always great melodies from him and Bublath really makes the organ and bass pedals pump with all kinds of variety under him. And Lettner mixes up the drum patterns expertly as well. Another intro section into Bublath's solo and he really connects lines smoothly on this one. They vamp around on the intro for Letner to get busy again on the drums with some high-pressure ideas and then take a final run through the melody and some tags of those fun unison figures to an exciting ending. Track 5, Jack's Joint, this is a Booboth tune, that's G-A-K apostrophe S and all right we've done a lot of uh, organ trio recordings and I always say you need one tune with a cruising groove and uh, that's this one, you know riding along with the top down your Hawaiian shirt and your gold chain. And you just got that, uh, organ tune on. Well, that's what this one is here. Uh, Letner fills it into a heavy and steady beat for the intro that has trilling and dreamy ringing vibes. Uh, syncopated vibes and organ line leads into the melody. It's 24 measures with uh, different A, B, and C sections. Bublath gets it going, and Collins joins in on the rising lines of the B section with ringing notes and some unison lines in the C section that lead to organ lines. And they go around it twice. The solo sections are different at 28 measures with some more shifting chord changes. Bubuth goes first and swells up the tension nicely and Collins plays some really tasty lines and cool snappy mallet figures. They go through the A, B, and C sections and then stick around on the B section for Lettner to do some tight drum improvising to a solo drum fill and a final rising and falling line to end it. Now we're going to get the only non-original the recording, track six, Sweet and Lovely. And this is a pop song of the day. It goes back to 1931 by Gus Arnheim, Charles N. Daniels, and Harry Tobias. And they give it an interesting Latin beat intro. And check out the cool rising bass lines from Boobleth. It's an A-A-B-A structured tune. Collins takes the melody on vibes uh, that switches up to swing in the second half of the A section and has cool synced up lines with the organ. The B section they let float without the drum beat and just light cymbal and hi-hat accents. And Boobleth solos first, and they keep it swinging for the solo. He has great chugging bass lines uh, walking along under there. works up to some edgier tone and some speedy repeated note ideas and playful phrases into some cool bluesy trills as well. Collins follows with a swing feel and snap in his lines and some speedy double time licks and one more melody run with a few final phrase repeats to end it neatly. Now we're going to get the uh, standout tune that uh, really blew me away. Here, Bibol Youssef, and this is a booblath tune. And we're in for some tricky rhythms and Middle Eastern modal play on this one. Check out the wild ostinato line that Bublath gets going under ringing vibes from Collins and subtle drumming from Letner. And I guess this is in a 9.8 meter. Uh, it's really odd. Collins and Bublath take the serpentine but rhythmic modal melody line in unison, and then the ostinato returns before some more unison figures, this time over a funky bass line into a solo from Collins. Bublath and Lettner really have a groove going in this unusual meter. Bublath has cool chord work around Collins's rhythmic solo lines. And Bublath has some fun meandering lines to get his solo going. It does a modal and outside harmonic exploration. Mysterious tension building and swelling chords too. There's a lot of fun on this one, bringing bluesy with some trills and held out chords all together. They work the snaking unison melody lines again, this time with more forceful playing and fills from Lettner underneath to a final ominous sounding ending. Track 8 is a Collins original, Situli Shuffle. Lettner makes a really busy subdivided but light kind of New Orleans beat and Bublith plays a really funky bass line for an intro into a kind of topsy-turvy unison melody line from Collins and Bublith. It's a speeding roller coaster and you can't see what's up ahead. Seems to be 64 bars with a lot of different sections in it. It's like some of them repeat, so you have like an A, A, B, C, D, C kind of uh, pattern uh, with a kind of more cruising groove on the D part. Collins solos first and the groove lends itself to speedy double time lines as he flies along, mixing very cool rhythmic patterns and figures with harmonic ideas. Bublith has a great organ cheering him on underneath, and they play that speedy C section of the melody together to a quick break before Bublith takes over. He pulls it back more relaxed before getting into more speedy lines and harmonic directions, uh, getting in some bluesy territory at the end. It's another unison, C-section of the melody, and then there's a cool change. They downshift it to a slow groove, started by some chilled rhythmic vibes from Collins, and Lettner fills it into the new beat, and Boobleth has rich, dark-toned hits and swells into some exchanges between organ and vibes to a fade-out. Track nine, another Collins tune, Down the Old Road and... In the uh, notes on his website, it says that dark road is a road in Lake George, New York, that went to his grandparents' house, and it's uh, well, not too far from uh, some relatives of mine there too, so even closer than Plattsburgh, that good old upstate New York region. This is a swinging 6-8 tune. Vibes and organ work it together for the 8-bar bouncy intro. The melody seems to be 20 measures with interesting mood changes from minor to major along the way as Collins keeps it driving along the road. They go through the intro and melody once again. It gets into a little transition section that turns dark and mysterious for a hold, then they restart the bouncy intro idea for Collins to get a solo started. Takes a couple rounds of the intro and melody pattern with good snappy lines in his solo. Bublith takes a trip around with a nice change up in organ tone on the way. They take it through the melody again to some sustained ringing out vibes and close it out with an outro like the intro section. And track 10, oh, let's see. How's your German there, Mike?
1: Uh, Schorfheide. Schorfheide. Okay, a Boobath <laughs> tune. Just, just to take a stab at it. Leonard's <laughs> <laughs> so got a strong rocky beat
0: for this one. It builds up tension with a long intro of three repeated syncopated chord hits to ringing vibes from Collins. Boobath adds a melody that uh, kind of fits between those hits for a few rounds and then trades it off to Collins. There's a contrasting section. Then they work together on melody lines. It comes down to a softer clicky drum beat for Collins' vibe solo, but Bublith keeps the bassline funky with a pulse underneath, gets his own solo working down into the lower register, and then into speedier and swirling organ as Lettner builds the beat back up. They take it back through the chord hits and unison melody lines into a quieter clicky groove for Collins to do some cool soft descending mallet work into some more final improvisations over the groove, and it fades away well organ and vibes really make a great match of tones for music we heard it once before on the podcast with uh, bernie Sineski and stefan bauer on uh, organic ear food in yeah one of my uh, albums of the year actually yeah, last year chambermaid yeah. and collins uh, has great technique here his improvisations are always melodic uh, even over difficult meters and grooves and Booth is just as impressive on organ as he is on piano. He chooses great tones uh, to match the tunes, as well as having really killer bass lines. <laughs> he he plays a uh, you know organ bass just like a bass player's lines uh, would work into a tune. Letner is tight and mixes up great grooves and creative fills throughout. Uh, we've got really great original melodies on the tunes with some tricky meters and structures to figure out as well. The uh, Bibol Yusef stands out as the really tricky number here, but fine solos and interplay through everything and I really enjoyed this recording.
1: Yeah, I did too. Um, it has funky grooves just like the, uh, the previous one and it just felt really good. It's, it's got this little carefree kind of vibe to it too. And I think I was really ready for something like this when I heard it. Hmm. Um, this especially became the case as it went on because once, uh, like you, Bibul Youssef came on, I was uh, really yeah, drawn in. <laughs> I mean, the the album really took off. It was already good, but it really took off from this point. And, um, that was uh, that Saituli Shuffle, were the two uh, standout uh, tracks for me. Not for the way they begin, but for the way they build an excitement during the solos. I thought mm. they even kind of heated up yeah. even more as they went on. I really enjoyed that. I was a little disappointed that Saituli Shuffle and Shorvaida both fade out at the end. I really, <laughs> yeah, that's your I, I have this standing rule. I think jazz should uh, end. You know, it's just one of those kinds of music. But I also loved the groove in Haida too. And this might be. It's too early to say, but this is going to be in consideration for one of my albums of the year, I'd say. I really enjoyed Mm. it a lot. Really, that organ and vibes
0: goes together really well. All right, and speaking of musicians we enjoy a lot, I can never stay away from a Positone uh, release (laughs) with our favorite and most featured rhythm section uh, of uh, the podcast. There's too many episodes to recount here with this rhythm section, Uh, but we've got a trumpet player we haven't gotten to yet and one that I've had my ear on and wanted to uh, get one of his recordings uh, to talk about. And so that's Josh Lawrence and his release also February 24th on Positone and that too. And Lawrence holds a bachelor's degree from the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, a master's degree from the Juilliard School in New York. And he also studied with legendary pianist Barry Harris. In 2021, he was named director of jazz studies at the Interlochen Center for the Arts, where he now leads the arts academy and summer camp programs and conducts the Interlochen Jazz Orchestra. And he's got five solo albums with Positone Records, two albums with Ropadope Records, uh, co-leading the Fresh Cut Orchestra, which received two Grammy Award nominations with pianist. Orin Evans's Captain Black Big Band and Smoke Session Records and he can be heard on some pop music recordings as well boys to men Erica Badu Jasmine Sullivan Lauren Talis and others uh, so I think he's one of the significant uh, trumpet players out there today so I just wanted to uh, catch one of his next recordings and with my favorite rhythm section of the time and on this recording, we've also got Willie Morris on tenor saxophone, the great Art Hirahata on piano, Boris Kozlov on bass. We've got two drummers, actually, uh, Jason Tiemann, I'm not sure, drums tracks one, two, and six. We've heard him before with Stephen Riley and others. And then the great Rudy Royston on the rest of the tracks on drums here. Mark Fries, the producer, Nick O'Toole, the engineer. This was recorded back in 2021 at Acoustic Recording, Brooklyn, New York. This uh, album's got some uh, things that make it a little bit uh, difficult to uh, get to the heart of because it has a lot of tunes that uh, kind of uh, don't spend too much time on the melody and get right into the solo, yeah, which true. makes it really yeah. hard to uh, figure out the structure on uh, initial listenings. And uh, so I'm going to have to listen to some of these some more. And we're going to start out with a Willie Morse tune, Grit. For the first track. And it's got four bars of drums and about six bars of trumpet and sax melody. And then Lawrence is off and <laughs> running on a solo. It's a modal adventure over a driving swing uh, marked out by Timon's cymbals and Kozlov's fast walking bass. You can get a sense of his full tone right away here. That's Lawrence's tone and creativity with different rhythmic figures mixed with more flowing lines. Uh, Hirohata builds up thick chiming chords to push him along. Lawrence builds off some interval ideas and gets into some higher register forceful playing and dissonance for a climax. There's a longer section of the intro melody snippet we heard at the beginning to transition to Morse's sax solo, and then they downshift to a swing of about half speed and Morse matches with fluid and relaxed lines. Uh, Kozlov is throwing in some really meaty fills on the bass underneath and Morris builds some figures up from low register digs and listen closely to the bass and cymbals as fits and spurts of the fast swing break in before they shift it back to the speedy tempo. Morris weaves speedy lines, interspersed with some cool high note hits and cool rhythmic ideas, moving in and out of the modes. Kozlov switches up from the walking to a snappy interval idea for Hirohara to get started on a rhythmically exciting solo, and they transition it back to a slow walking swing, and Hirohara works through interesting harmonic ideas into little waves of figures, back to the fast tempo and big percussive piano chords, and they end it with the sax and trumpet melody phrase. Track 2, something a little familiar to uh, jazz, Fan's Nefertiti, the Wayne Shorter tune. Hirohata starts it with a sparse solo piano intro, and then Lawrence enters with the melody on a harmon-muted trumpet. It's really slow. The motion comes from Kozlov's thick ringing bass. Taman here on drums adds soft drum textures, and Lawrence gets the resonance out of the muted tone to really bloom in the lower register probably right up to the microphone and you can get that huge sound out of it. Nice relaxed phrasing and articulation with some pitch bent attacks near the end. Hirahata starts his solo with a stream of trickles and continues with pretty rolling figures that build up to more percussive chords with and swelling Cymbals. Things come down again for Lawrence to return with more muted melody. Kozlov is playing some cool chord figures underneath and Hirahata decorating lightly with piano figures and Lawrence takes it to a long-sustained note ending. Track three, a Lawrence original here, Cosmological Constant. Royston's toms swell into this one. The first section of the melody has Latiny staccato horn figures with feisty drum fills, and that repeats. Then there's a section of super speedy legato horn figures, then a section that mixes those two ideas, and then it changes up to a more loping swing groove for four bars, and finally, speedy exchanges between trumpet and sax it's quite an amusement park ride of a melody (laughs) arrangement here They come out of it in a driving swing and Morris is up for a solo first He's fluid and speedy over the fast tempo which is a minor AABA construction for the solo. It's a little easier to follow here. Royston's cymbals and drumming is super tight and feisty underneath, and Lawrence comes in for a start on some repeated licks and they shift it to the loping swing uh, with an Art Blakey kind of feel to it. Lawrence gets some great sassy Lee Morgan kind of licks, finding a lot of cool bluesy spots, flutter tonguing, and some higher register notes pushing it to a big climax with big jamming chords from Hirahara who transitions to his solo with some speedy, bouncy, and bluesy licks. He continues on with great swing feel and some super fun rhythmic play before things get speedy again, and he really rips it up and keeps going. The horns add the staccato line figure and then come back with the smoother speedy lines. They take the loping lines to a slowdown into a trill to end it. Great solos all around, but Hirahara really burns up on this track. Really great one. Track four also... Josh Lawrence's original North Winds. This one has another really short four-measure melody idea to get started. Uh, Lawrence begins with a solo trumpet figure that Morris answers before they come together, and Lawrence is launched on his solo over a fast swing with lots of minor modal changes. The fast swing dissolves for Morris to start his solo with a sparse rhythm section environment. Check out Royston's development of the new even beat from Light Hi-Hat and Click's all the way up to furious fills and how a new groove develops with Kozlov and Hirahara's interaction. Morse keeps his lines rhythmic and snappy with lots of sheets of harmonic exploration all the time this, this is developing. Uh, Hirahara locks his solo ideas into the groove uh, with precision and creates a lot of rhythmic excitement with zippy lines and percussive chords. The horns come back in over him with a new repeated syncopated rising line to a sudden ending. Track five, another Lawrence original Black Keys. Hirahara starts it out solo with an interesting two-hand interplay. It sounds like on the Black Keys, making a pentatonic mood on the piano here. Uh, He then starts a slow rhythmic groove that Kozlov joins, and Lawrence adds a melody over with a really nice trumpet tone and subtle vibrato. Morse joins in with answering lines, and Royston adds soft hi-hat and accents. Uh, The horns join together on lines with... Fills underneath from Hirahara, and then Lawrence solos first, getting a mournful mood over just Kozlov's simple posts and light hi hat with lyrical phrasing and smeared notes and plungy growls. Uh, he works up to some more harmonically exploring lines, leaving a lot of space between ideas. Kozlov switches up to a slow walking line when Hirara comes in with his solo. He has a bluesy laziness and some fun rhythmic play that gets into thick percussive chords. Uh, The horns come back for some final unison lines on top of the end of the piano solo, and things calm down for a sparse ending. Track six is another Willie Morris tune, Hole in the Wall. And I think this is the shortest melody fragment yet, with just two <laughs> measures and a final note to get Morris launched on a solo over just drums and Kozlov's bass to start. Hirahara adds fills and chord punctuations gradually, and Morris has a lot of harmonic freedom here and gets some edgy and angsty ideas among his snappy phrases. The final phrases unwind, and Lawrence overlaps, matching the phrasing to get started on his solo. Kozlov mixes up the bassline rhythms in tricky ways, then interacts with Lawrence's brazing, And Lawrence has some interesting harmonic explorations and a lot of Miles Davis-inspired articulation here. Listen for the unexpected melody phrases he finishes up with. You'll think it's over when Kozlov stops the walking bass lines, but wait for the short opening horn phrase to come back and end it. Track 7 is called Left Hanging. A Lawrence original, a delicate rubato opening from Hirahara into another harmon muted ballad for Lawrence. Very slow waltz tempo for the pretty melody. Lawrence again uses the lower register bloom of the harmon mute tone to get a really rich sound. Morris joins in to harmonize on the final section of the melody and he continues on with a solo. Very nice phrasing and building with soft intensity. Hirohara's solo shows off his delicate touch with beautiful, trickling phrases, and Lawrence keeps his solo lyrical but often with snappy little ideas. Building melodic phrases really trace out the interesting tensions and releases that he's built into these chord changes. Uh, He continues on into a second round, and Morris joins him on the last section as they get back to the harmonized melody lines to the slowed down ending with more pretty trickles from Hirahara and thick bowed bass from Kozlov. We're going to end it with a cool tune, also a Lawrence original Cantus Farmus, and this is in a 5-4 meter with a great loping bass line from Kozlov. Uh, There's a 16-bar intro to set it out, and Royston does some tasty fills around the kit to set the mood. The melody's 16 measures and has the horns working unison and then splitting off. Lawrence has some clear high lines that stand out. Uh, Hirahara solo's first, lots of big chiming chords and zippy melodic lines, and Lawrence picks up on his final idea of a series of ascending phrases to start an exchange of eight measure phrases with Morris, to become four measures, then two, and finally have them weaving lines uh, together. Kozlov and Hirahara keep an ostinato going with a few chord injections for Royston to have some solo time around the drum kit. And then the horns return with a variation of the melody line that gets broken up with some harmonic tension from Hirahada's chords before the final phrase. And that's it. I thought Lawrence shows off a mature style of soloing and harmonic conception. You can hear the big post-bop influences of major trumpet players, Miles Davis, Freddie Hubbard, but he's really got his own sound. I like his ideas and phrasing a lot. He doesn't show off technically, but rather aims for a melodic and harmonic exploration of the material he's working with. Two really nice ballads here, one original and one Wayne Shorter tune. A couple tunes just build from melody fragments, it seems, uh, but they go to interesting places with this great rhythm section and Morris's versatile sax playing. Black Keys and Cantus Firmus added a lot of variety to round out the compositions, fine solos all around, Hirohara impressing as usual, and great grooves and impact from uh, Rudy Royston. Uh, The only thing missing on this whole... (laughs) Recording is a bass solo from Kozloff,
1: but I guess we we'll just have to wait for the next one. Yeah, one of our favorite basses. We probably figured him featured him more than uh, I think. Any he's other the, on the musician on the entire most podcast. appearing musician on the yeah. music
0: podcast. Yeah.
1: All right, anyway, yeah. One thing. One thing that grabbed my ear about this is these suddenly not only the suddenly changing rhythms and tempos that they use, but mm. musical styles even changed in the compositions. I was like, mm. it was kind of a major wow for me, like to, on the fly like that to have these things change. Um, so suddenly yeah. and unexpectedly. It kept me on my toes, I have to say. I did notice about, Hidehara was great, but his sound, the piano sound changed from track to track and I was wondering if it was because of the the mm. uh, recording change or if he's actually playing different pianos. Like sometimes it sounded like it had sort of a more old-timey kind of sound to it and sometimes it sounded mm, more well, like a, a grand piano. I wasn't really sure, but that's what I mm-hmm. noticed. And anyway, he, he was fantastic. He's he's a favorite of the podcasts. Yeah, Sometimes it's more like kind of, rich sounding and sometimes it's more like got more of a sort of dry sound like it's an upright hmm. or an old piano or something like that anyway we get some plunger mute from uh lawrence which i'm sure you uh yeah enjoyed when yeah. that came up um and i like it when it's used sparingly as here although i did like it on the um the the, uh, the guy who played with Snorri kirk oh tobias wickland tobias yeah. wickland yeah i liked yeah. i like to i like the way he uses it too it's part of his character mm-hmm. and i particularly enjoyed it Oddly enough, um, with all, so, so many favorite musicians on this uh, album, I really enjoyed uh, Morris's soloing. Mm. Um, he had great tone and a sensitive approach to the slower material. He was also warm and quick in the faster. So he's someone I had my ear on. I really enjoyed him. That's uh, Willie Morris III the yeah. Tennis Axe.
0: Yeah, anyway, uh, Lawrence's playing is really mature, incorporates the post-bop trumpet tradition, but he's got his own voice and a uh, very mature kind of uh, harmonic style. Exploration Very solid in all of his registers. As I said, he doesn't really show off, but he adds to the tune and uh, uses the material to go in interesting directions. So I'm going to be listening to uh, any new music that uh, he releases as well.
1: Okay, and I guess that's
0: it. I guess that's it for episode 107. Uh, we don't have any preview for next week, well, other than Mike will be featuring female composers in the classical and... And I'm going to go more on a time order release to make sure I pick the best of things that come out and don't miss anything. So there'll be some variety in there. And uh, shortly after this episode gets published, if you wonder what that will be, you can go check out the playlist on Deezer or the link to it. It will be posted on our Facebook site and come over to Facebook. Anyway, check that out to get new releases that may or may not make it into an episode in the future. If you just need something new to listen to the latest and the greatest every week, come over and check that out. And don't forget, as we mentioned at the beginning, interview seven with Nicholas Sivalov, pianist, composer, and now composer of symphonies as well. I think the whole world is going to, uh, Know about him more and more. If you want to get some insight to all this great music he's creating? Check out our interview, which will be released on Thursday morning, Japan time, or Wednesday night, US time.
1: Yeah, and I encourage you to hear that. It was a really fun interview, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it and find it very uh, illuminating.
0: As always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for a glowing neon logo. Stay tuned. Lots of great music coming up this spring and we'll be back with female composers and fresh picks of spring jazz in episode one Oh eight. So we'll see you again next episode. Gerald Albright, Rhea Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Luke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something came from Baltimore is a jazz blues and R&B podcast and radio show. And it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist, or future favorite artists that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More Music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Kaufman, Paula Cole, Danuzzo, Macatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscroll, mostly.
1: Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Demino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference Two jazz fans One jazz standard A review of a single jazz standard Through music, history, and stories And this is AJ And this is Johnny If you are a jazz fan And you like jazz standards